Welcome to the One Sock Nation podcast. I'm your host, Kareem Ray. Today, we're honored to have Kendall Reyes, a prominent figure in the soccer community and the co-owner and general manager of Spreda 20 or 20 FC. Kendall's journey in soccer spans over decades, marked by his dedication for diversity and equity in the beautiful game. Join us as we dive into his inspiring story and explore his unique perspectives on the game that unites us all. Kendall, thank you so much for joining us today. How's it going? Hey, I'm good, Kareem. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So uh, one of my favorite questions to always ask my guests is, how did you get involved in the beautiful game? Well, um, I, I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Port of Spain, capital city. I'm from the inner city. I, I like to mention where I'm from. Um, Nelson Street, Port of Spain, for those who are from the capital would know uh, um, where I'm talking about. So I've been involved in the game really as a natural part of the environment I was in. We played in the street, we played in the schoolyard, we played on rooftops, uh, we played in, in the place called the Dry River. It didn't matter, everybody played. And, um, and I was also in an environment where um, there were older players in my community who played at a high level. The captain of the national team lived in the same apartment building that I lived in. I had older uncles who played. So for as long as I can remember, I, I've been involved playing, uh, playing the game, and it just evolved over time. Yeah, amazing. I, you know, when you when you talk about playing soccer on the street, it reminds me for, for me and you know playing on the street down here in Canada. It's obviously a bit different. Back home in Egypt maybe similar to Trinidad, but can you just share a little bit of your, you know, going, going a bit back here, but can you just share about your experiences of growing up in Trinidad, playing ball there, and then how that has influenced you to where you are now, you know, when you came over to the U.S.? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the street game has been uh, fading over time, but, um, but, you know, in the culture where we come from, that game is such an integral part of who we are. So in my neighborhood, I, when I was growing up, there were neighborhood teams. So so my uncle and they had a team, the older guys, but even for me as a youth, I think we were probably, you know, nine, 10 years old. We formed our own neighborhood team. We played in the league um, between two apartment buildings. We played in a six-a-side league. Goals were made with wood and actually fish nets from people used for, for catching fish. And there's a league. We we bought our own t-shirts and we made stencils and hand painted or print on our shirt. Uh, my team when I was growing up was called Grissom, G-R-I-S-S-O-M. That was my my uncle and they, the older guy's team, but we were Grissom youths. So uh, and we played. We we had no coach. We played, we organized, and we played the game for fun and the best way we knew how and we and it was competitive, right? So the community league from my block, the other block across the street, Mango Rose from Duncan Street, all over, everybody had their own little team and we played in this league that was was incredible. I mean, crowds and crowds, people hanging out their windows, people on top of walls. It, it was incredible atmosphere that we had growing up because people were so passionate about the game. And um you know, at the time, so I grew up, I, you know, I, I was born in 63. So coming through there, the World Cup, um, you know, all of Trinidad for the most part was Brazilian. Um, so, you know, getting to see the early World Cups in the 70s with Pele and um, a lot of clubs came to Trinidad to play professional clubs. So we got a chance to see those players, you know, live and in person. So we had a real good uh, foundation and for building a love and passion for the game. And then through my early years when I went to high school, so I started playing in high school right away. I went to Trinity College. And, uh, you know, at that high school level, there's three levels. So there's U14s, 16s, and then the senior teams would be U19s. So right away, I played for U14. And then a unique thing that happens uh, in some, some cases that, older players tend to coach or share with younger players. So by the time I, I started playing for U16, I was actually coaching the U14 team at my high school, you know? And then, so when I went on to the next level, um, I played for the senior team and then I, I transferred 
uh, to another high school, which was an incredible program that I went to, uh, one of the top uh, schools in the country called John Donaldson Technical. Um, when I got there, there's 10 national team players that uh, U team players that were there. And that was really a, a, a proving ground for me as a player coming in a little bit younger, but still learning from some of the best of the best on the island at that time. I had two wonderful coaches, um, Coach Brigham Gonzalez and uh, Nat Simpson, that really um, helped us hone our skills and our discipline. And then also had the opportunity to play with uh, what was considered a soccer school at the time um, called the Alvin Cornell Coaching School. And uh, Alvin Cornell is a former national player and uh, icon in the game, educator, worked with FIFA, uh, a real icon in the game, um, not just in the Caribbean, but globally. And uh, in his soccer school, we had players from all over the island that would come from all different communities, would train, would play. You know, Dwight York came through there, Russell Lathby for a little bit, but there are players you might never have heard of, incredible players that came through. And that was really another environment that helped us really um, coach would share with us a lot of the, the 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 information that he was gathering from moving around the globe with what he was doing with FIFA to help us in our development. Um, his program then catered for a lot of guys getting scholarships to the U.S. And um, for me, I, that didn't work for me, but I came to the U.S. to pursue an opportunity, which I ended up doing and uh, going to a uh, small school in South Carolina, Francis Marion University. So that, that, that's the gist of my, my playing, uh, you know, pathway, yeah. Amazing, you know, can you, can you share a little bit about how, you know, if it wasn't for the beautiful game, would you say that you would be in the US right now? Uh, from the time, yeah, from that time of playing you, all in. You and know, it's twofold because migration to the U.S. from the Caribbean and lots of other places is a natural thing that happened all through the 50s, 60s, 70s. So there are families and generations of families that have been doing that. Um, I, I can't pinpoint and say that if it wasn't for the game, I might not have done that. But because of the game, I certainly it was certainly a catalyst for me doing it because I have the family members who have migrated, not because of the sport, but that's just a natural occurrence. But I think because of being in an environment where other players and my peer group were also getting these opportunities to go to university, study, and using um, the beautiful game as their access point, I think that worked in, in parallel for me as well too. So uh, in some ways I would say, yeah, definitely, because that became my passion at at the stage or time in existence, there weren't really opportunities or very limited opportunities to become a professional player. So coming to the U.S. on a university was pretty much like becoming a pro in its own in its own shape. So um, so for us, an opportunity to come out to study to use our skills and our in, in craft in the game and uh, and be an an important part of a program. So. When I went to Francis Marion, I was a captain as a freshman. And, uh, you know, I, I earned MVP honors and I earned conference honors my freshman year. So the things that I brought to the table with me, they able to impact the program, but also give me a chance to get an education that probably I might not have otherwise pursued. Because on the flip side, the academic standards and challenges in the Caribbean with the University of the West Indies being the only avenue at the time really competitive academically. Um, I was not that student who could do it that way. So pursuing a university degree through soccer as the vehicle was better for me and a lot of my peers than what we could probably have done trying to go to university back back at home. So it was a vehicle for a lot of people, including myself, a lot, a lot of guys who came, um, impacted their programs and uh, and have gone on to do great things in the game and build lives, you know, through the process. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned soccer being that vehicle. Soccer is such a powerful vehicle that can, you know, help 
changed the lives of other people, which it has for millions of people. Um, when you mentioned that, it reminds me of players that I've spoken to Europe that were, you know, great players, but maybe didn't make it in their system. And they seen an opportunity to come to the US and pursue an opportunity to go to school and, and still pursue their soccer career. And, and, you know, some of these guys have signed pro contracts because of the, the talent that they bring from Europe, because the system in Europe is more developed than the US on a professional level scale. And they come here and they blossom. So yeah. with saying that, I was interested to ask you, you know, for me, for me, when I was growing up, my mind was growing up here in Canada, my mind was always on just going pro. So, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't value school as much, going to college or university as much as I do now, knowing what I know now. So yeah. my mind back then was just go pro, go pro, go pro. What would you say to players now that are that are coming up, the next generation that are, you know, around the age of 18, uh, coming to a life decision of, of, you know, maybe they just want to focus on, on going pro? Or what would you say about influencing them on choosing an opportunity to pursue their career, which is also a great opportunity, I want to, I want to say, uh, knowing what I know now, pursuing it at a college or university level to still go pro. Um, and it's more possible in, in the U.S. per se. What are your thoughts on that? Um, the college the college college system and university what advice would you give to athletes that are around the age of 18 yeah so so times are very very different now uh compared to my time not only with the limit the differences in in, in access to opportunity right so um your dream would never would not have been any different from mine we always dream about becoming a professional player is just how do you access that and so in my time it was not an easy or available opportunity. There were no leagues that you could leave Trinidad and go to unless you were playing for a senior national team. We had a lot of guys who came and played in the NASL and some of the other American leagues at the time. Um, older than, than I was, Lincoln Phillips and uh, Leon Carpets and those guys, Steve Davis, those guys had careers in, in, in the NASL um, and then once that folded, there was really nothing in the U.S. It was very difficult to get to Europe. So we all had those dreams, but what would be the next thing if that didn't happen? Um, uh, getting a university scholarship and getting a chance to want, continue playing a beautiful game and uh, at the next competitive level that you could and get an education, it's a smart thing to do, right? You have to also think about no matter what sport it is, your longevity as a professional is only going to last for a certain period. So, so for example, when I was a senior, after I finished my senior year in college, they were just starting the A-League, and I had an invitation to come to the Charleston Batteries, new team. Some of my friends were going to play there, um, but my coach gave me an opportunity to stay on and become his graduate assistant. He'd pay for my master's. And uh, and I pursue a master's degree. So, to me, now weighing those two things out, I'm you know you go live with four guys in an apartment for a couple hundred bucks a month, or you pursue a master's that could open more doors for you down the road. Um, that's what you weigh. And so the same thing is true. I would say for the 18 year old, there's tons of opportunities out there, but as many opportunities as there are, you have to really understand the statistics that are involved. What percentage of players out there that um, are actually having the dream and then fulfilling the dream, have an opportunity to fulfill the dream? And now, not only that, because of technology and everything else, you're competing globally, believe it or not, for the limited amount of spots there are. So it's not you and five other guys from Canada or five other guys from the U.S. It's you and, and the rest of the world, you know? So... I would say don't put off your dreams. Don't let anybody deter you from your dreams. There are a lot of dream killers out there. Um, if you believe in a dream, you pursue it, yes. But also understand that there's a reality and you have to deal with the reality. What percentage do the numbers, because numbers don't lie. Numbers tell you what if it's 1%, then you got to understand where you are in the 1% and how you're going to not only get there, but sustain being there. 
right? So lots of guys get drafted, but you never see them after that because they didn't make it, right? Or they're playing at another level or one year and then they're gone. So there's a lot more layers to it than just saying, I want to go pro, which is great. You and 500 million other people want to do the same thing. Are you doing all the things that will allow you to get there and then maintain yourself? Um, but then the option of going to university does make sense, right? So you get to play at a high level. Some of these programs are very, very good programs. The infrastructure, the, the resources that they have, you're literally like a professional player, a semi-professional player in that environment, but you're getting an academic degree that at the end, you could still pursue a career, which many players have done. You can still pursue a career, but now you have an academic credential that could help support you going down the road. It can then diversify into other areas of the game and not just as a player, but I mean, look at you doing media. There's all kinds of stuff involved now in the game. You can still be involved. And it's not just necessarily this, what I would consider as narrow an idea of becoming a professional player. We'd all love to do it, but not everyone's going to either one, get the opportunity or two, be able to make it when the opportunity comes to sustain it. So the, the U.S. college system is not a bad option at all. It's a very good option. Just depends on where you fit in and you've got to be realistic about what those things look like. Yeah, you nailed it on the head with that one, 100% on, you know, full 360 on that. Um, you know, when you were when you were talking, it kind of reminded me about, I, I had a cool thought, and I want to get your feedback on this, Kendall. Going to, you know, pursuing your dream and, and going to university or college is like putting insurance on your dream. Because if you get injured, you start, you have a backup. So getting that degree is like that. In, it's like life insurance or car insurance on your on your ongoing uh, ongoing pro. No. So I, again, yeah, but here's what here's what I'd like to here's how I'd like to qualify what you're actually saying, yep. because real dreamers don't have backups. Mm. They they go with plan A. There's no plan B. Right. And they right. drive hard. The entrepreneurial spirit, right? They believe in what they believe in, and they go hard, right? Um, something doesn't work for them. They pivot, they go another direction. That, that's what they do. The, the, the comfort or the safety of that backup plan could sometimes take away from your drive. When the going gets tough, you'll say, oh, well, you know what? I, I could just go use my business degree and go do what I gotta do. The, uh, there are other people who you're competing against they don't have a backup. The guy from, from Congo, he, he doesn't have a backup. Sadio Mane, those guys don't have backup plan. Those guys have a village who invested in them and they're going to succeed and that's what they do. So you got to make sure you weigh out, you know, the, the pros and cons of using that approach. Your career is going to end at some point. I'd love to still be playing, but physically I can't, right? So then that's the second phase. So I don't like to use backup plan. I like to use second phase or third phase of what you're doing because we ultimately we're all growing as people and from our experiences. Um, the idea of a backup plan is not really that. That's just for another phase in, in time of my growth and my existence. I like that a little bit better in a backup plan because there's guys out there who they're going with plan A and that's it. They're not looking left, right, or backwards. They're just looking at where they where they aspire to get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, re I really like that feedback. Um, it really puts it into a real perspective because that is very true, very true. And re regardless, there are times that are going to come that are going to be rough that you have to push through. So, you know, I, I really love that point that you mentioned that those guys that don't have a, a backup plan, they got to go all in. Planning, so yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, what motivated you to take a stand for women's soccer at Francis? You might have Marian. to correct me with this one, but Francis Marian Marian University, and how did you navigate the challenges you faced there? 
Yeah, so that that's a unique scenario that um, that I walked into. I, I just finished my senior year playing there at the school, Francis Marion University, and we were getting ready to start spring practice. Uh, we had a, a team meeting, and uh, the athletic director walked into the meeting, and uh, he had an announcement to make that there was no longer going to be a men's soccer program. And of course, everyone is stunned. Um, our coach evidently was aware, but he didn't know how to break the news. So a wonderful guy, uh, Tom Davidson, my coach, uh, I'm forever grateful to him for, for the impact that he had on my life and giving me that opportunity. And so what ensued was not a real explanation of why they were dropping men's soccer, other than there was this law and and because the university didn't want to be sued by the government, um, they needed to drop. We had too many male sports or male athletes. They need to reduce the number. So the irony in the whole converse, in the whole in the whole thing is the athletic director is also the head baseball coach. My soccer coach is the assistant baseball coach. So now. Faced with this situation, the university decides, well, we're going to drop men's soccer. That will reduce the numbers of men, equal out the numbers with men and women. So they were looking for from an equity position more than anything else, right? So 100 male players, 100 female athletes, and we're good. That solves the question. Um, there's a huge protest on campus. My teammates other people who supported, other students who supported the program, huge protests on campus uh, in front of the administration building. Uh, we had a guy who was a former player that worked for a local television station, Mike CM, he came to cover the story and, uh, and, it, and it was making public, um, growing public attention. So the athletic director called me to his office and he said, Hey, look, you're the captain of this team. I need you to get this to stop. It's not a good look for the institution. So I went to my team, my teammates, and I said, hey, guys, you know, this is what it's coming back from, from the top. Uh, we need to have a different approach. And I took on the challenge. I said, listen, I'm going to work and do the best that I can to see how we can get our program reinstated. That led to a series of meetings with the athletic director, the president, um, the student faculty advisor ongoing. And um, I even ended up in a meeting with the legal counsel from the board of trustees. So they were all trying to tell me that I didn't understand the legal ramifications that came with this Title IX law and how if, if the institution didn't do this, the impact it would have on them and I'd started doing my own research to understand really what Title IX was. And from my research, I found that Title IX was not just about having equal numbers for men and women, but it was about creating more opportunities and equal opportunity for women. So that's where my advocacy came from. So I took the approach proactively to say, well, if it's about student body population, if you have 55% women and 45% men, then your athletic programs need to reflect those same numbers as well. What you put into the men's program, you gotta put into the women's program. So here we are, if we just drop men's soccer, that's not solving or that's not addressing what the law really wants you to do, which is to create opportunities for women. So I drafted a proposal, how to start a women's program, um, you know, I, I did all my research. I looked at other schools that already had women's soccer at the time. This, so this is early 90s. The U.S. had just won the first Women's World Cup. So I started collecting all of this information, drafted a proposal, how to start a program, starting from on campus as a club team and then building it into varsity over time because the law would allow you to do that as long as you were making the efforts to create those opportunities that was following what the law was asking. And then being at a state institution, it dawned on me that every other state institution, even the ones we play against on the men's side would have to answer that same question. So we, um, 
pulled this. So these meetings went on and on for several months because the board wasn't going to vote for it until about three or four months later. So this is every day pounding and researching and reading. And then the night before the board meeting, I had a meeting again with the legal counsel and he tried to give me all of this here. You know, you don't understand the problems you're going to create for the university. I went back to the library and I started looking again and searching. And then I found some information that talked about institutions that if, if there were women that were asking for a program, the institution at least had to consider. So I got together with a student body president and vice president who were both females, African-American females, had no interest in soccer. But when I explained what this whole thing was about, we drafted a petition and went door to door through the dorms and apartments, knocking doors. We got 125 signatures from females on campus asking for a women's soccer program. Mm -hmm. The following morning, I went to the board meeting, saw the legal counsel, and I handed him the documentation I had and the petition. And I said, tell me what you think about this. And he looked at it and he laughed like it was a done deal as far as they were concerned. But I had also mailed the proposal I drafted on how to start the program to all of the board members. There were 18 board members at the time, two females. So when the board meeting started and it was this discussion came to the table, they were asking the athletic director, so why you want to drop men's soccer? And you say, well, this is the easiest way for us to do it, you know, and it would even the numbers out. And, but not knowing that I had presented a world of information for my research. So one of the female board members asked him, have you considered adding a women's soccer team? And he said, no, women's soccer, who plays, who, you know, who does that? And she started reading from my information well do you know the u.s women just won a world cup do you know that there are 20 schools within a three-hour geographic location that already has women's soccer do you know that all the state institutions that are facing this law would have to do that as well so and he he was startling was like no i didn't know so the whole conversation shifted to well have you really done the work to address title nine or are you just dropping men's soccer as a simple solution? Um, I made some other statements about our team and, you know, we, we weren't the best in the conference, obviously. And uh, my coach was in attendance. I was sitting in the gallery and they asked my coach, what was his take? Of course, now he is the assistant football coach, the 80s, the head coach. So there's not a whole lot my coach is going to say, right? And um, so they wanted him to talk about this men's soccer program. And he humbly said that he did not have the, the wherewithal to program, but that his captain for four years was in the room. If the board would allow me the floor to speak, he would suggest that I would be a better representation for the program. So they did, they allowed me, I spoke, on behalf of my program, the impact we had having the highest GPA of the male athletic teams, representation from eight or 10 different states and five different countries. And you know, when we go to camps in the summer, we represent the university. So the impact that we had as a program was broader than just having a team. And I had teammates who had committed from different places to come to this program and now they wouldn't have a place to play. But more importantly, we could be pioneers in this whole thing. We could start women's soccer. We'd be the first to do it in our conference. This and, and then let's go with it. So that was my pitch for women's soccer and pushing. And the board voted unanimously to reinstate the men's program, but to also start a women's program. Wow, that's amazing. 18 members to make that decision, eh? Yeah, yeah. There was a unanimous vote, 16... 17 to 1. Wow. 17 to 1 unanimous vote in favor. Yeah. So, wow. So, 
That's what time period did this take and how long so did it take? This is uh, 1993, 94, somewhere in there. And by soon after that board meeting, they relieved my coach of his duties. Um, and then they did a search for, for a coach. Um, I was the assistant at the time, so I was handling the program, hired a new coach, and uh, Murray Hartzler, who's actually the current AD now, and he and I worked feverishly over the next year to, uh, to, to rebuild the men's program, but also to start the women's program from inception. So this said, and the women played their first game uh, in 1995. Uh, by the end of that season, they were top 20, ranked top 20 in the nation, Division Two. And uh, two years later, when they were in the NCAA tournament, the men's program was on its way, uh, being uh, recovering or, or rebuilding, I should say, in that process. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing, Kemba. That that really inspires me for the the push that you had to, and the drive to. push for the women's game in the US. You know, it was something that they just wanted to remove the men's soccer program and and not even, you know, look at the women's side and look at the facts and you guys were able to put, you know, you were able to put everything together, show, you know, show them, we need this. And did yeah. you notice and, you know, help them understand that this is an importance to keep the men's program and add a women's program and now, the game has evolved so much as, as you know, in the U S on both the men's and women's and some exciting times for the women's side as well. So, so Kendall, you've, you know, you advocated for the men's side for your program and as well as to add a woman's program, um, which didn't exist at all. Reflecting on that, it sounded like you had to advocate for the game itself. Well, well, yeah, of course. Again, you have to remember in the environment we're in, um, I'm in the South, right? So soccer is not a prominent sport in the South. It's basketball, it's football, it's baseball. So yes, at the time, early 90s, even before, you, you have to advocate for the game. In, in the college environment, in the high school environment, it might be there, but the game needed advocacy at the time. And uh that in itself, in the essence, was what really took place from that, from that whole scenario. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, and you know, we're in 2024 now. I'm a 2000 baby, so I don't really think about those those times too much. But they're not too far away, and there's still things right. existed in that time that are still here in this time. But yeah. you know, reflecting from your perspective and all the the, the data and information that you have. How how much progress have we made from you know the nineteen ninety to two thousand to now? So yeah, there, there's a, a ton of progress that's been made. Um, there are things that were non-existent that existent now. You know, a full-fledged professional league at the MLS level, whether people like what it is or not, but it's there. Um, you got it. You got the different tiers. You've got really solid collegiate programs. Um, that have blossomed over time, especially for the women's game. The women's game became the driving force, fastest growing sport at, at the collegiate level, at the youth level. Um, and then it was an answer for some of those bigger programs that have the traditional football. Because now when you start looking at numbers, a football team has 100 players, where are you going to get 100 female athletes to find that balance? Your, your best bet is to find a women's team where you could at least carry a third, right? 30 players or 35 players some programs have. So it created those avenues for the growth of women's soccer. It was the one sport that could add the largest numbers. And then it also opened the door for other sports. You found women's bowling and women's, you know, volleyball expanded, even though things were there, but others female sports started expanding, but soccer was the one that could have the biggest impact just from a sheer number standpoint in terms of the equity in, in, in the number and student body population. Gotta remember that that's part of how this whole thing works. If you got 
higher percentage female student body population compared to the male, that's part of the equation as well. So that soccer allowed a lot of those institutions to be able to answer that call by adding women's soccer. Understood. Uh, before I segue into the challenge challenges, I want to uh, just highlight a lot. There's a lot more Black inclusion um, ever since, for me, I opened my eyes to this, ever since the George Floyd incident that I think happened back in 2020, right? Was it 2020? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I started to notice a lot more Black um, things happening, per se. Um, more Black inclusion in, in the corporate space. Um, people advocating for more Black people, more inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion. There we go. Um, so within the soccer landscape, it was, um, what is it called? Black Players for Change, MLS. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Quincy Ameriqua, advisor at One Soccer Nation, he, he shared a lot of information with me there. Um, you have, we, there's the uh, United uh, Black Coaches. Um, that you're a part of as well that I'd love to hear more from you about and when that was created so on and so forth that's something I, I just uh, got connected to and, and learned a little bit about when this was back in 2023 in Philly when I was down there for you know hosting our podcast um, and then USL just recently made an announcement United Soccer League um, in regards to uh, diversity and equity inclusion uh, play that was just recently announced this month it's called yeah. it's called something, but I don't have it on the top of my memory right now. But there's more they're they're working towards including more black people into the front office space. Um, from your perspective, um, like where are we with that, and is it moving too slow or is it moving in a in a better pace? And and how's it how's the U.S. landscape with for diversity looking for you? Well, I, I'd start by by saying that there has been progress. Um, moving too slow, I would say yes. But I think we need to start with understanding of the history of the country. And this is not new. This is the 60s, right? 50s. This is a civil rights movement. And those things go, they go in waves. So every time you make some progress, there's something that's introduced to either slow, deter, or shift the conversation. So that's an ongoing uh, challenge that we face. Now, we're talking about 2020. It's not new. You found that the cancer culture pushed a lot of corporations to at least be open about the idea of DEI. However, three, four years later, we're finding that a lot of it was also uh, just checking the box and exercising checking the boxes, right? So, because there's a lot of conversations on that side as well. Well, where's DEI? You see companies and programs literally removing DEI people that they brought in, you know, in the leadership roles to spearhead those initiatives, and then they've been removed. On the other hand, you can see the impact. So for example, Black players for change of the MLS really doing some strategic work. Black soccer coaches within the United Soccer Coaches doing some strategic work to continue to push the, 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 the agendas towards DEI. Um, in the USL, Dr. Chris Busey, the man who's spearheading the DEI initiatives have just brought a brilliant one. He and I have had some conversation, and uh, he he he's a strong advocate for it. Um, and he he's a guy you should have a conversation with him about it. He can really give you some insight. Um, but you're talking about legislature, you're talking about government, you're talking about institutions that have existed in a space for so long. The DEI is not really important to them, and now the movement has forced some of them into a space that. They don't really care about that much. And now when you come in, it's like, yeah, you're here, but this is how we do things. So the person you bring in to solve that problem or bring some solutions, they're handcuffed in what they really want to do. So we're talking about impacting the mindset of people. 
valuing diversity, there's something really unique. My whole thing about it is, is look, if I want to give my company the best shot at being the best for our customers, for the people that we serve, for the products that we produce, then I want to get a shot at the best of the best. If you don't have that approach, then DEI is going to cause you to fall short. It's going to cause you to fall short of what you want to produce at the highest level. Because there's some guy, there's some female, there's somebody out there who has a little bit more information or has a different perspective, has a different thought process, a different mindset, a different experience. That if you had that person included, now it changes the game for your company, for your business, for your ideas, for your initiatives in a way that you never could imagine because you're not operating in those other spaces. When we look at the spending power of the minority dollar, you can't just think, well, let's just go capture that dollar. You have to, you have, to have people who understand what that, the value of that dollar means for it to make sense. And then you have to create things with a value system, a change of value system of how you want to approach DEI than to just say, hey, hey, look at us, you know, fill out this form, you know, answer these questions and let's hire this person. That's not, that's not really going to get it done. So um, as we say, you know, every time you make progress, they move the goal. So that's what happens. The goal, the goal post keeps moving. So the work never ends. The work never ends. Mm. That's a, that's a really good point right there. And, you know, if it, if it wasn't moving, there would be a lot more progress. Um, but that, that is definitely an impact that does, that not only exists in the soccer space, but in life overall as well. Yeah. yeah that's a lot. Um, Tapping into the challenges as a black head coach in the collegiate soccer scene, what were some of the key challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? So I, you know, um, that that's such an interesting question because man, I could give you tons, we don't have enough time, but you know, I can talk about how how we're viewed as leaders right so that's the first place so when you're hired as a coach if they're only looking at you from your background in the game and and what you've done as a coach but don't really look beyond that to who you are as a person your leadership skills your leadership qualities your ability your, your visionary all those other qualities that you bring could actually be diminished because you're only labeled and categorized as coach. So I'm in a program where, remember I talk about having to advocate for the sport, advocate for the female. There's a lot of other things. So I'm at a school where the program, the women's program had a head coach that coached both programs, okay? And the players told me when I came in, they separated programs when I came in and we have a separate practice time and, and I'm doing all the things that I want to do for the program. The players say, we've never had this because our experience has been, you know, coach leaves us with a bag of balls in one half of the field and he goes over there and coaches the guys. So they're enthusiastic to have a coach who's now going to give them what they need, right? And then you have an administration. Now we go to administration to understand the things that I want to do for my program. I'm doing them because I'm a leader, because I want to lead my program. I want to lead my players to, to have the best experience they can have. So if we're practicing off campus and I ask for portable toilets, that becomes an issue. Well, why do you need that for? And so nobody's thinking about, well, it's a female athlete. What are they going to do? Are they going to, they, they need to use the restroom? Are they going to just run back to the dorm? I mean, what happens to your practice then? So they're not looking at, at me as a leader who wants to build a successful program. I'm just a coach. And that diminishes, as I said, it diminishes 
my real capacity as a as a as a person as a human who comes with all of or a whole lot more than just being a soccer coach right um i'm in another institution i have one that another school that i started the program as well i was in in inaugural coach and um the first year I have one African-American player on my team. So I asked the player at the end of the first year, I said, hey, how do you feel about being the only player on the team? She says, it's not a big deal. I've always been the only player, the only black player on the team. So this is a young lady from Virginia, right? And I say to myself, I said, well, what can I do to change this? She's comfortable because that's all she's known I'm looking around and there's a handful of black coaches, head coaches to begin with. I'm one of the handful. We go to a recruiting event, you can see us, right? And it's kind of a running joke, you know, is there something going on? You know, there's five of you guys, like it's a big deal. It's five of us, right? So, um, but there are no females, there are no black females. There's maybe one, there's maybe two, okay? And we could we could name them right off the top of our heads if we if we shake the barrel. So um, so then now you're looking to see how do I use the platform that I have to create some more opportunities now, not just for the female player, but for the minority player. So I go and I consciously have in my mind, when I go to recruit players, do I look for players that are minority players to see who has the quality to add to my program? I'm not recruiting them because they're black or because they're minority, but I'm looking to see if I could be another person who opens the door of opportunity for that player. In that period, I, I, I promise you most teams, if you see two on a team, that's plenty, okay? So I at least wanna engage if they have the quality, if, they, if they're showing the kind of quality I'm looking for, I'm gonna engage them hardcore in my recruiting process, you know, all the PWIs are recruiting them anyway for their athleticism or whatever reasons I'm recruiting them because I want to be the person or one of the people who gives them an additional opportunity that they could consider. So I add five more players to my team next year. And then I get a call and somebody says, hey, is there a new rule by the NCAA that, um, you have to have a certain amount of black players on your team. And I was like, no, I've never heard of that rule before. Say, so, well, we were just wondering because we noticed you have like what, six players now? And I was like, yeah, but they're all really good. You should come see them play. I think all six are going to start. They're good enough to start. And so what message does that then send? I'm not just bringing in players because they're black. I'm bringing in players because they're good and I have opportunity to give them an opportunity and that's what I want to do. So I start that. So that's the way I continue the advocacy, right? Um, it's about opportunity. It's about access. And and and, and so, and, and it's not about checking the boxes. Mm. It's not about checking the boxes. Challenges, yeah. You have officials that come to your game and they treat you with disrespect. I've been there, done that. Um, you have parents who they talk to you on the phone, but when they come to the campus visit and they realize that, wait a minute, he, he's black. I don't know if I want my kid here. And Well, you know, you can feel, you, we know that, right? We've been there, we've been in those spaces, right? You go to a space to, um, you know, an athletic banquet or some kind of event and you stand up to talk. And then when you come and you sit back down, somebody says, wow, I didn't know you were that articulate. It's all over the place, man. Been there, done that. Yeah. Constant. Hey, but you got, you just got to keep pushing. And then we did a lot of work to uh, our Black Soccer Coaches group with really reaching out and trying to grow the group and mentor the young female, African-American female to get into coaching and, you know, and leadership especially, you know? So um, you can see the incredible work that Nicole Hercules, my, uh, my successor, uh, you know, after I finished chairing the group and she's done a wonderful job and the team, they're doing some amazing things now. 
that's the history of the work that came through that organization and they're working alongside Black Players for Change and, and all these other entities that we've been working with. It, the work never ends, my friend. It just never ends. Wow. Um, Kendall, I'm, I'm truly inspired by the works that you've, you've done and continue to do. It speaks volumes. Um, I'm learning along the way as, as we go. And, and you know, something that reminds me of what you're talking about a little bit from my first experience in the U.S. landscape was back in 2023. Actually, a few, but I'm just going to mention one was down uh, down in Philly for the United Soccer Coaches Convention. I'd say there's less than 500, if not around there, Black people that were there. And supposedly there was 15,000 people that were there. And, um, you know, 500, I don't know what the percentage is on that but, uh, for 15,000 people being there overall. But I was I was really shocked. I was like, wow, this is this is an eye opener. You know, as you said, numbers don't lie. So it was really interesting to see. And, you know, it's something I spoke to Quincy about, um, you know, because that's when I ran into him down there. And I was just like, I'm like, that. wow, this is this is very interesting. And then start to have more conversation conversations and learn that this is this is a thing that is across the board in all industries, that this is how it is. And it's like, okay, got it. So um, I'm just uh, excited to be in the space with you guys and, and I'm happy that you guys are bringing me in and, and learning from you guys. So it's it's definitely continues to open my eye and I appreciate your time. Spreda at 2020, uh, 20 or 20FB, right? Kendall, that's Spreda. Sparta 2020FC. Sparta. Yeah. Sparta. Okay. Okay. So you, you've owned a club. Uh, wait, do you still own the club? Like, is it still well, operating? Well, we're, we're, um, we got hit by COVID okay. and, uh, and that sort of canceled our operation from a financial standpoint. We couldn't, we couldn't recoup from COVID. Yeah. So, okay. but I, I was, um, part owner and, uh, and GM and head coach as well too. So, yeah. Understood. Yeah. You know, starting a club is, is a lot of work. Um, and you know, owning a soccer team is a significant responsibility. Um, what values and goals drove you to approach the owner, uh, to approach the creation of, I'm going to butcher it again. It's spread out. Spotter. 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 Oh my God. Spotter. 20, 20, 20 or 20 FC. Um, you know, what really inspired this creation? And there's a lot of responsibilities that came with it. So what was your experience with, with this whole club? Well, yeah, so, I, you know, I, um, you know, part of the advocacy uh, work that we do, we try to look at all the different landscapes and uh, where we're making an impact and how we can make an impact, right? You say you want to be the change that you want to see. So when we, when we start looking into the landscape and realizing that there's still limited opportunities for players and for coaches, especially minority players and coaches, the doors might be opening up more for players, but then there than there are for coaches. And so the, the the place that that's impacted the most is from an ownership standpoint. So if if you're not if you own it, then you can guide it, right? And so um, you can shape it the way you want to shape it. So we we'll constantly have coaches that are knocking on the door, that are looking for opportunities, and opportunities are not there. So the idea was to create a, a club that would allow one for ownership and then two for those players in that vacuum, post-college, post-university, right, didn't make it to the pro. But most of these guys are 21, 22, 23 years old. There's plenty of soccer left in them. They want to play. So my, my business partner now, Andy Salandi with Tie-Dye Nation, um, had the opportunity to work with the UPSL in bringing the league to the East Coast. On In California, there was 20, 30 teams, maybe if that much. And then so bringing the league to the East Coast sort of was a catalyst for me looking into the team ownership. You know, how can I have a team of my own to bring in? Um, I got with, with, with a partner who 
I had been working in the youth club. I trained his son, um, Raymond, and uh, he's a business owner, local business owner. And uh, we'd worked together for several years with the things that I'd been doing. Pitched the idea, and he liked it, and he says, yeah, let's let's do it, you know. And so that's where we launched Sparta 2020, you know, with the name. So we're in Spartanburg, South Carolina. So we go with Sparta, the first part of the name for location identity. And then 2020 was clearly about the vision, right? So 2020, eyesight, 2020, perfect vision. And the goal was to move a UPSL team from amateur to professional status starting in 2017 to by the year 2020. Well, we didn't see COVID coming. So by 2020, we actually come to a standstill because we're the ones who are trying to do this uh, club and that uh, it's expensive to do, um, even though it's an amateur club, but the level we're trying to do it at, um, it, it requires a lot of financial resources. So, um, but we learn a lot through the process that um, the, the the soccer landscape isn't as accommodating for you to build a program that easily because the competition for sponsorship dollars and those things, it's spread so wide that there's, there's a lot more work that goes in. You have to have a really solid team of people, people who could tap in to, to bring in additional resources in, not just about writing the checks that you're able to write, but you've got to have revenue coming in. It's a landscape where it's not revenue generating for you per se. Um, youth soccer landscape is already established. And so you're being conscientious of how you build relationships with the youth soccer community to get them to support you to high school. I was coaching at a high school at the time, a private high school, um, Spartanburg Day School, um, Zion Williams, I went to school there. And I was very fortunate that they gave us the opportunity to use their facilities, uh, you know, at a, at a reasonable cost and uh, to be able to access it. So you, you use some of those relationships to make it work, but for it to really grow into what you wanted to grow into, it would take a whole lot more to do that. Um, so my my whole philosophy with this thing was to create a space where those players who were post-college didn't make it to pro, players who never went to college but could play the Hispanic community, that's where that came in. They play in their own leagues, but they've never had the opportunity to get to another level. Could we use this club as a platform to give those players an opportunity to get to the next level? And that was that was the philosophy behind doing it. And um, it, it went very well. We got a lot of players who had a quality experience in that window. And um, we actually had some youngsters, uh, you know, three or four 15-year-olds that came into our program that we invited in. And uh, we really saw some, some growth, exponential growth in their development as well. You know, coming from my background where young players played with, we played with grownups, you know, to me, I, I thought that was an important piece of the development process. And so we brought those young players in to get that experience as well. But um, but that was the gist behind doing that. And uh, my partner, Andy, did a lot of work uh, with me supporting um, to build the entire East Coast, the league on the entire East Coast. You know, we went from, you know, eight teams, in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia to 40, 50, 60 teams, Maryland, Virginia, all the way down to Florida, Florida with two divisions. And then he worked with another person to build the Northeast. So the entire East Coast uh, was his brainchild. And uh, you know, I was just there in, in the capacity to support him in doing that, leveraging the relationships that I have through my background in coaching and uh, coaching education to connect the dots with a lot of people. That's amazing, Kendall. I'm, I'm definitely interested to learn more about that as well. Yeah. Uh, as you know, what path we're on with One Soccer Nation. Coming up here on time, I have just two more questions. Mm -hmm. um, the second last question is, 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 is for me, a personal question I want to ask you too. And then mm -hmm. the last question is a, is a pretty fun one. I think you'll like it. 
but um you know with your extensive experience in various roles what key lessons in leadership and management have you have you learned and 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 what advice would you give me and i want to say i think learned is the wrong way well you've learned and executed on so you know yeah i'll leave it at what you've executed on and what advice would you give me leadership well i i think for my personal philosophy authenticity is really important I, you can't be anybody else but yourself. And what you bring to the table, you need to be true to it. You need to be a man of your word. You need to be consistent in the things, in the way you operate and how you engage people. Um, your ability to, to build and, uh, and sustain relationships, to foster relationships and relationship growth is, is really important for you to be able to, to do. Um, to have a vision that you could clearly describe to people of what you see. Not everybody will see it. You need to understand and everybody's going to see your vision, but your ability to articulate your vision is what's going to help draw people in. And that's part of your role as a leader is to show them the vision. And then being able to, um, what we like to say, uh, to inspire people. A leader has to inspire people when 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 they hear you speak, when you present yourself, when you present your vision, people got to say, wow, I want to be a part of that. How I can support that. Right. Um, so being a visionary, being authentic and then being able to inspire people is are the three things that I think from my experiences that are that are critical in terms of really honing those leadership skills people gotta want to follow you and uh they gotta know why they follow you and they gotta be comfortable to follow you where you're going right the other important piece is to not always be the wisest person in the room so like anything else you're leading you're building a team you're looking for people who bring certain qualities and attributes to the table that can enhance what you're doing or what you're what you envision doing to bring the vision to its fruition. So um, you know, you don't need people just to ride the coattail for riding the coattail sake or to say yes because you said you want people who are gonna stretch you and challenge you and challenge your vision to make it better so that you have a better product at the end. Mm. So thank you for sharing that, Tendo. Um this last one, I think you're going to really like this one. Ooh. We're in 2024, two years away from the World Cup. We got Messi, Suarez, Sergio Busquets, Jordi Alba down in down in the U.S., close by you in Miami. I'm not too sure if it, how big if you're a fan of them, if you like them or not. But talk to me. What, what's your what are you envisioning for the future of soccer in the U.S. And, and with all this hype and excitement, what are your thoughts? Copa America, possibly a FIFA's Women's World Cup in the U.S. What are your thoughts? So, I mean, the, the U.S. and soccer, it, it's the new frontier for the last you know, 10, 15 years for the most part, right? You had a league that, that's been growing, the MLS. And I think that Messi and those guys did. I admire those guys when they were young and could actually really play. Um, you know, when they played for Barca, um, you know, it was brilliant. I saw a picture recently where uh, where their kids were all sitting on a bench with their names on the back of their, you know, uh, on their Miami jerseys, their kids. So there's another generation of those coming in. But, but I'm very conscientious about really what the soccer landscape looks like. There's tons of opportunity um, for everyone. You know, where do we fit in and how do we cover the piece uh, uh, the pie in our niche to make sure that we, we, get, we get a taste of it as well too. That's really important to me. So from that whole, again, diversity, advocacy, perspective, leadership, ownership, all of that, I think with all of the things to come, we want to make sure that we our position to also be a part of of this uh, dynamic and new new frontier in the game. Um, 
things are already moving to be hosting the next World Cup, right? Uh, it, there's always a lot of excitement around that. But the expansion of leagues, you've got MLS Next happening, you've got UL, U, USL growing. Um, the women's side is, is, is moving at an amazing pace. There are tons of things happening, plenty of opportunities. And I think the stage is right for even greater things to come. Um, Want to make sure that our players, that our kids, that our, our people, our coaches, that those doors are going to be open for them, for us to be an integral part of all that is happening, um, uh, you know, with the game and, and what's to come based on the future. 100%. I have no other questions. I think that's a perfect way to, to end off this, this interview um, on everything that you just said. Inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. Um, Kendall, I want to thank you for taking the time for joining us today and sharing your remarkable journey in soccer. Your dedication to fostering inclusion and access in sports is truly inspiring to me and I hope to our viewers. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in into the One Soccer Nation podcast. We hope today's conversation with Kendall Reyes has given you a deeper appreciation for the role of leadership and advocacy in soccer. Stay with us for more episodes where we continue to uncover the diverse and dynamic world of soccer. Kendall, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on with us today. Thank you again. Thank you for having me, Kareem. It was a pleasure as well. Love what you do with One Soccer Nation. And uh, excited to see where that project uh, ends up. Yeah. Thank you.